Hello, everybody. Welcome to Chatty AF, the Anime Feminist Podcast. My name is Tony. I'm a contributing editor at Anime Feminist, and with me are Caitlin and Annie. Welcome back. Hello. I am Caitlin. I am one of the editors at Anime Feminist, as well as a reviewer at Anime News Network. You can find me on Twitter at altsoon underscore nodere. I know it's a sinking ship, but I'm still clinging to those to those uh, planks. I reblog things occasionally on Tumblr at all dash soon dash and dash no dash dere. I have blue skies altsoon underscore nodere, although I don't use it very much yet. And yeah, excited to be here. Hi everyone, I'm Annie. Uh, I'm on social media as Miss Fun Learns, and I'm just here to hang out. And you can find me at uh, Poet Pedagogue on Twitter, Blue Sky, etc., etc., etc. So we are here for part two of our podcast about Vinland Saga. Now we're go- we're going to get to the serious stuff a bit later. We have planned for for the conversation uh, some com- discourse around the show's engagement with enslavement and settler colonialism. So y'all can look forward to that. But before we begin, uh, (laughs) we thought it would be best to start with just like, because we didn't get enough time to talk about this. And we realized after y'all probably want to know who we think are the hottest Vinland Saga boys. Who are the hottest boys in Vinland Saga? (laughs) Because you see, it felt weird doing a whole podcast episode where I don't make some kind of frivolously horny remark. So we got to get it in early on this one. Caitlin's got to stay on brand. So, you know. And and boys and girls, if if, if there's girls that people find particularly hot in Vinland Saga, uh, I can't speak to that. But <laughs> um, so, uh, Caitlin, you want to tell us some of your thoughts on these boys and girls? You know. It's uh, a question of who has the bigger glow up. Is it Canute when he becomes king and he grows a beard? Normally I'm not into beards, but he rocks it. Or is it Thorfinn at the end of season two, ironically, when he shaves his beard? And I really haven't found the answer for that yet. Uh, who, Who looks better by the end of that season? Yeah, like I said, normally I'm not into beards, but Canute is is rocking that look. Yeah, I find um I actually like Thorfinn with his beard and his ponytail. I think it's kind of cute. He just looks like he's he's chilling, and I'm like, I like that you feel even though you're going through all this shit, you just kind of look like you're chilling. I appreciate that. Mm, mm, I'm not in. I wasn't into that look. I think that Einar's lumberjack bod is really underrated. Um, I just think like the, the upper bod there is just really like, and I am not someone who's like typically attracted to bodies as like a demi ace person, but like aesthetically, like he looks good, you know, like he's just wearing that like little green tunic and like he like, he's got some shape and definition, um, from like a toxic red flag standpoint, I am absolutely a canute girly in season two, um, and I, oh, I had, I also think that like the sleeper hit in this is Snake. Yeah. Yes, Snake. Yeah, that's true. That's true. <laughs> How could we forget uh, him? Any character named Snake, you know that they're probably going to be hot. Like whenever uh, uh, they're named that, it's like they got to have that kind of dark, like brooding personality, but it's like still a little bit sensual you know yeah oh sensual is a great word for snake but you know he's got like the dark hair he's got the tan he's got like the body he's got the skills he's charming he's funny you know it's, it's the he's whole definitely package for me charismatic mm-hmm. but he's also kind of bratty he like but i know that you like that tony i do like that <laughs> i don't know like like, uh, we were talking about, about Suguru and Undead Murder Farce, and, like, you know, the thing about Suguru is, like, I I, I want to crush him like a bug, um, and, you know, <laughs> because he makes some stupid comments, and I feel like Snake is the same way, like, I kind of want to crush him like a bug, but also... 
Mm. I'm I'm into it. I think someone who I would want to crush me like a bug, Ilva. <laughs> oh yes, her, the strongest woman. No, not just strongest woman, the strongest person, period, mm-hmm. in all of in the entire series. Who can who can fell Thorfinn with a single punch, yes. Yeah, like if I were into like power scaling and those like shonen battle shonen arguments, like I feel like they're missing out on Ilva in these conversations. You think she could take down Thorkel? Oh, that's a fun one. Mm, I feel like maybe we could come back to this. I'm going to think about that. <laughs> Something to yes. meditate on while we talk about <laughs> evolutionism in, in uh, Vinland Saga. Could she, <laughs> could she take down Thorkel? You know, I think I think it's a a th- th- the toss of a three sided die uh, between Snake. Uh, Thorfinn at the end of season two and Beardy Canute for me. Uh, for me, okay, okay, really wild card here. Really wild thing. Okay. I, we- I weirdly find Leaf hot before, like, in when Thorfinn's a kid. There's something about, me- like... Let me pull this up. Let me remind myself. I remind it. yourself of Leaf Erickson? I mean... Of Hinga Dinga like, the very... Be- I mean, at the very beginning of the series, you know. That's what I'm saying. At the very yeah, beginning well, of the series. Yeah, well, I have to remind series. myself what he looks like at that point. Uh, I could see it. The mustache is not working for me. For me, it's just the vibe. He just seems like somebody who's who's down for anything. Like, you know, you want to go to a party, he'll be there. You want to go to the other side of the world, he'll be there, right? And I like that in a man. Compelling argument. Yeah, you, yeah, the personality definitely. I think in terms of personality, Leaf probably wins. Um, he he's genuinely like one of the like <laughs> like most thoughtful and nice people in the show. Like, I mean, even when like he found like the the other Thorfinn bug eyes, he still. It's not like he like brought him back to the person who's ultimate. Like, this isn't the right Thorfinn. <laughs> Them. Okay, so like Tony, so like Tony, who else makes like your your final draft selection? Like we already heard from Caitlin. I'm curious about who makes your final three. Okay, we another really weird wild one. I'm gonna say is Bug Eyes, just because I want to like, I just want to pet him on the head, just be like, <laughs> you're you're a good boy. Because he's an adult now, right? I can say that. Um. Yeah, he's older than Thorfinn by like ten years. He's like in his 30s. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah. So like weirdly enough, I just feel like I feel like I have the weirdest one. Probably Snake, Bug Eyes, and Young Leaf. I know that's not who anyone would expect, but they're mine. I'm 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 attracted to the weirdos, okay? I think I've honed in on my my final draft selection. I think I would go with I really am just a red flag girly, and I'm really okay with that, but I'm gonna go with <laughs> Ilva, followed by uh, post glow up Canute, uh, and then taking the top spot is Askelad. Yeah. Okay, you, know you need to explain Askelad. Tell me, tell me about this. I thought that that was self explanatory in the red flag girly. Like, yeah. <laughs> no, I, I, I felt that. I felt that. That was very. <laughs> you know, you could have said the the worst one to say that for that would have been uh, Thorkel. Um, at least no one out here is is saying uh, Floki. Oh yeah, no, exactly. no, we're not, no. Roll Floki's head. <laughs> Put numbers on three sides of Floki's head and roll it, and then yeah, we'll take one of my choices. <laughs> no, Floki is okay. Floki is the worst. Thorkel, no, he's Thorkel, the have... Floki is horrible. <laughs> sucks so bad literal fascist and just from like an aesthetic perspective like he's not doing it for me he's just too rectangular you know that's exactly what i was thinking no shade but i couldn't find the words you know what if you're a floki fucker no let us know in the comments because i'm i have so many questions no judgment just questions like i think i could understand but i I just want to hear it because I don't understand right now, but I could. I'm open. 
His his face is literally a rectangle with that beard. It looks like he has two chins on uh, either side of his face. Like, what is going on? You know, there's no accounting for taste. And his hair. Oh my goodness! Wow. They, they, they. Yukimura really just managed to make the the least attractive looking face. Um. Did we want to move on to? <laughs> <laughs> All right, well, we said we wanted some frivolity to start out. Yeah, and then <laughs> I have, okay, I have one it. more. It also feels oh. like I can't close this conversation, though. My last ask for you both is Thor's. Oh, Thor's. He yeah, just, would. He, he's not one of my top choices, but would. He's too dad for me. That's mm. a, something I've never said in my life. Long-time and chatty AF listeners will 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 understand why that was so funny to me. <laughs> like this is that's this lore. is the, <laughs> the deep, deep Annie lore. Film lore. <laughs> this is the person who watched Sakugan and was like, "Well, may, you know, the show seems like it might be a mess, but I got my new crush." <laughs> Yeah, unfortunately, <laughs> it was not enough to keep me watching through the whole series. What a trash I show. <laughs> I'm not sure if you all have done this before, but I do think that if you did, like, a year-end, like, draft selection or kind of Sweet 16 bracket of, like, hottest anime characters across fandoms, I I, I would be interested. I'm just saying. Oh, my gosh. how How would we choose, though? You would have to have like subcategories. Mm-hmm. I did a dad's bracket one time, way back in the day, bef- when you had to use special websites for it. But anyway, I'm just saying, I would tune. I would tune back in. Okay. You know, at one point in that conversation, there was a really good segue when we were talking about Leif. Uh, yes, we. Were. But we, we had to continue one. being silly for a bit longer. <laughs> Yeah, so so the segue was that we were talking about Leaf and we were interested in like this kind of like idea of like so Leif is interesting because he seems to embody this like sort of nonviolent individual like response to enslavement that is clearly resisting it. He goes around like um and like uses kind of some of his capital to help um free enslaved people who, you know, he thinks might be Thorfinn. But as we said earlier, it's not like he goes and, you know, sends them back when he realizes it's not Thorfinn. No, no, he he still cares for them and, like, cares about them. And I want to talk a little bit about the show's engagement with slavery because the entirety of the second season is about slavery, really. Um, And the problems, well... God, the problems with slavery, that sounds like such an understatement. But, you know, but the ways that slavery works and narratives around slavery and, um, yeah, uh, I think it's worth, like, just situating us a little bit, right, like, in the historical context, right? Like, the the slavery in this show is a little bit different because this is a different era of history than, than, like, American chattel slavery, right? I know mostly that if you get into an argument with someone online about how uh, all of these different series uh, glorifying slavery is kind of weird and gross, they'll be like, well, not all slavery is like American uh, chattel slavery. Mm. And then I'm just like, I know that's wrong. But I cannot get into an in-depth discussion about this because I don't know enough. Yeah, I mean, I I do think that this is that that's an interesting point you made earlier. Is that like, like we are in a, in a la- anime landscape where it is just normal for the protagonist of a show to literally go out and buy a slave and treat them not very well. Um, not that there's any good way to treat an enslaved person, right? <laughs> But, you know, um, like, thinking about Rudy and, like, Mushoku Tensei, um, or um, that, that that sort of thing, or Rising of the Shield Hero, especially in the isekai genre, this is a really common thing. And I have so, like, gotten to the point 
where if there is an isekai and I think it sounds actually kind of interesting, I will look it up and see if there, I will go to the fan wiki and search for the word slave. And you know what the hit rate on that is? So high. It's so high. They can't stop having slavery in isekai. It's crazy. But it it is interesting though because this the, the that isekai genre is built is based around a, a kind of fantasy version of approximately this period in medieval Europe, right? <laughs> like yeah. the idea of, the the idea of slavery in these in these isekai is built a, around similar like the similar era of slavery that we're talking about in this show, like obviously through a fantasy lens, but a lot of that fantasy was built upon Norse mythology and like, um, like um, thinking about things like the Lord of the Rings and it's indebtedness to Beowulf, which is, you know, and so, so it's hard to extricate. I think this conversation from that larger discourse, because this show is about exactly those kinds of slavery, right? Mm-hmm. Like without the fantasy element that these isekai are about, and it has a very different perspective on them. <laughs> Yeah. Um, hmm. Outside of the slavery, the specific slavery conversation, I think Leif is an interesting character um, hmm. within his the his cultural paradigm. Not just because he is the kind of guy who goes out searching for this little boy from his village who was who was um, enslaved and accidentally buys other ones who are short and blonde named Thorfinn, but aren't the ones he looks for and then he's just like well you're my son now i guess <laughs> um, but also you know the culture that he lives in is very focused on battle and conquest and violence and he is out doing exploration and he's not exploring for the sake of conquest he's exploring for the sake of for the sake of it, for finding out more about their world. And in the like very first episode, when he's telling stories about his journeys to the children, all the adults are like, oh, that leaf. Him and his silly running around and not really trying to accomplish anything. Because you know, and, their and only leaf- idea of what success is, is like to ha- to to like win at war and then eventually own slaves right you know Mm -hmm. that's like what uh like a young norse child's idea of what success is because that's what's culturally like considered normal in that society right so i think he's presented as this very um unconventional within his culture person from the very start and that start you know him plus thor's and his whole like I was just hit by how the emptiness of violence one day and just walked away. And, you know, Ilda's, uh, Ilda's asking about slaves and he's like, no, we will not buy a slave because it's not our way. And rescuing mm-hmm. slaves, like it really puts the philosophy of the story out in the very, you know, right out in the open. Going back to the bigger picture and kind of where you started about nowadays, people have a pretty limited understanding of the of like slavery as a construct and situating um, different movements or structures of slavery throughout history Um, because American chattel slavery as we know starts in like the 1400s with the triangle trade and like the really in the 1300s right prior to that and then the way it makes land it becomes situated as the foundation of the United States whereas like Vinland Saga takes place in the late 10th early 11th century um was just like a very different configuration of um, power and empire. And there's still like, there's not exactly nation states articulated the way that they are now. There's a little bit more like shifting borders, looseness, like some degree of like nomadic groups like the Vikings. Um, And I appreciate what you're saying about Leif being an anomaly because he is an anomaly certainly to the overall structure of Viking culture of domination conquest but even within Iceland right and like Thor's and his wife had made their way out to Iceland to escape at the very least like the domination of it even the people of Iceland who are just trying to survive 
in a subsistence way think that Leif is strange for having bigger ideas of the world and imagination than just like trying to survive the day-to-day of how hard things are in Iceland. Um, So I think for a lot of reasons, he's a really curious character for Thorfinn to meet in the very beginning and then kind of for his role to be situated again in season two. Um, Oh, and the other thing I wanted to say around all of this, I guess, before we move forward was that I really appreciated what both of you were saying about isekai and this fantasy relationship to Europe. I think that's a global issue um, of this fantasy of medieval Europe. And what I really, really value about like Yukimura Sensei and his like in Vinland Saga is that it is so grounded in historical fact. Like he's definitely mm-hmm. having his own imagination, his own sense of play, or you know, fudging some from um facts about who these characters are, how they may have related to each other, but his grounding of the economics, of the violence, of the cultural attitudes and mores, um, and the the consequences of how all those things have on people at the very, very top to canoe all the way down to the bottom of folks who are enslaved within this system, I think is a really great antidote to the kind of really problematic loosey-goosey fantasy orientation we have to towards that time period yeah and i mean i love me some medieval european fantasy to be perfectly honest uh i grew up reading the works of tamora pierce they were a huge influence on me growing up um (laughs) i read a lot of Dragonlance as a teen like i am fond of that but also the, that kind of fantasy of medieval Europe, it never, it never existed. And, but yeah, this kind of glorification of medieval Europe. But yeah, I think Yukimura's devotion to kind of realism and thinking out these societal structures in a very like realistic, grounded way, while also, ex- like thinking of it in a modern way uh is real is really his strength um you know planetas his other big series that's known in in english is set in the future but it's about it's still dealing with a very like rounded problem like collecting garbage in space what do you do with space trash because that's a really huge danger for spacefaring vessels and only getting worse nowadays with all the like with all the um the the satellites that Elon Musk is launching into space. It's only that, getting that worse. That are exploding. Um, yep. Yep. <laughs> um. Yep. So, did we want to talk a little bit about um the kind of? I think one of the really interesting narratives in the show, and one of the narratives that I think Yukimura Sensei is really trying to critique, um in an interesting way is the myth of the good enslaver um kettle i think is very interesting because he's when he's first presented we kind of see him as this like i think he's presented in this way that is somewhat not kind but reasonable like he gives Thorfinn and Einar, this idea that if they just work the land, you know, and make him money, he will release them and then they can choose whether or not they want to continue working for him. Like, and, you know, other people had gone through this. So this was not a false promise, right? Like Potter. And of course, this is kind of like one of the distinctions between like um, medieval European slavery and in American chattel slavery is that like no American slave could well, as far as I know, it was, like, very, very, very rare for American slaves to buy themselves out of slavery versus, um, you know, in medieval Europe, maybe it was more common. But I think that over the course of the show, um, Kettle is, like, relationship with, like, morality and, like, this idea that he can be a good, a decent person while enslaving is... In more and more critiqued to the point where it just falls apart completely. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know. What, what are y'all's thoughts on Kettle? Because I think he's really interesting. 
I think I agree. At first it comes across like, well, thank goodness this guy is the one that owns Thorfinn and, and Einar because, you know, he's going to let them work their way to freedom and he doesn't treat them cruelly. And the moment that fell apart, I mean, as a person with critical thinking skills, I was able to be like, well, hold on a second. <laughs> I'm sorry. That's but- so funny to me because... <laughs> So many people don't have critical thinking skills around this stuff. <laughs> Anyways, continue. I was able to say, well, hold on. But the moment that it became clear that that was a false narrative within the show was when he was lying in bed with his head in her- in Arnheis' lap and just sobbing about how he's under so much pressure and his life is so hard and it slowly pans up to her face and is completely blank because no matter how quote unquote nice he is he owns this woman she does not want to be there he is raping her daily and what he is doing to her is not love. And she hates him. She acts nice with him because that is her job as an enslaved person. And from that point on, it is very, very clear what the narrative is saying about him as someone who owns other people, other human beings, and deprives them of their choices and their freedom. It's very interesting because it, it seems like he's trying to kind of present himself as a poor little meow meow. <laughs> and it's just like the poor little meow meowification of like enslavers, right? <laughs> um, and it's like, no, dude, you, you, you like, you do not know how to stand up to your son. Also, you enslave these people. <laughs> like, uh, and, and it's really interesting the context in which he's, you know, whining to her, right? Because the context is that he just beat up some, beat up it, uh, one, I, I forget whether they're like, um, whether they're, were they, were they servants at uh, another, at his estate or at another estate? I don't know if they were servants because they were caught stealing right yeah they were caught stealing and then he's and then he kindly offers like well you'll just work for me for a couple years and like you know just long enough that you can like make it that you can earn back what you stole from us and like i don't remember maybe more i forget exactly but the point is that like he just he's just beat up a poor like a poor child who like like defenseless right with a big rod and because his like his son was like you're being too soft on these and he knew that if he let his son beat up this child the son would literally kill him and then he's like oh my life is so bad because i have to because i have to do these terrible things mm-hmm. and and that and that's why you should feel sorry for me and comfort me. Wah. And it's like, girl, <laughs> stop. <laughs> you. And at that point, to give him any kind of credibility, it feels a little bit like that drill tweet that's like, I, I, I stand corrected. I've just talked to my publicist. Um... I just and I just learned what ISIS is, and we actually do not have to hand it to them. Do not, in fact, have got to hand it to them. <laughs> no, um, Annie, do you have any thoughts on Keto before we kind of like shift gears a bit? <laughs> um, yeah, I do. Um, with Keto, I think it's interesting because I think one of the again the strengths of Yukimura's writing is that he really portrays the unique challenges from like an individual standpoint um, that each of these people within this worldview can barely imagine a world outside of the ones that they've known. I think that the 
two people who do it the most obviously are uh, Canute and Thorfinn. But with Kito, like, it's interesting. Yeah, similarly, you kind of get lured into this false sense of security in the beginning that he is a kindly uh, slave owner who's offering an alternative path. Um, I do think that what is valuable here is that Yukimura Sensei portrays again slavery accurate to the times as in there was there were models and opportunities for some people to um work their way out of slavery through it's called manumission i think right when you work to free yourself um because then i think that it problematizes the entire notion of slavery being a positive or a viable thing in the first place because yeah like you both have said when we get to our night later um it really is clearly like, oh, it's based entirely on his whim and any structure that's based on like an individual person's feelings is not inherently ever going to be fair or, or just. Um, so I think those are the things I think even prior to him beating the young boy, I think that there were some kind of flags to communicate that he is not an inherently good person. Um and it's not going to be like a reliable person in the structure because of the ways in which both Einar and Thorfinn were being treated by the other former slaves. Um, yeah, he clearly just the left it passively. Yeah, mm-hmm. because it doesn't it doesn't impact his bottom line, right? Like whether all of Einar and Thorfinn's work gets completely undone. Um, and that they're bullied and stuff like that, right? Because at the end of the day, what matters is his harvest, the amount of forest that they can tear down on his behalf and things like that. So it's like, I think that already from the very beginning can call into question whether or not he's like a decent person. But I just thought it was interesting that by the time we get to what happens with Arnide at the end, um, Twitter was like very violently like divided on this and that there was um, a lot of defending of Kathil and his mental state and the the acts that led to that. Yeah. So I, I just thought it was interesting because when I'm looking at it at the beginning, there's certainly some flags about his state of humanity as an individual. Um, and then by the time we get to the end that it calls into question both him as a quote unquote good slave owner and the entire structure of slavery in the story so i just thought both were interesting again isis you do not have to hand it to them you know <laughs> like god Did, were people following falling for the whole poor little meow meowification <laughs> is that what was going on well yeah i think that what happens is that you know you see him making these choices i think that people do have a sense of empathy and i think in some ways, it's because Yukimura sets that up for Thorfinn, right? Like, should we be feeling sad or sorry for Thorfinn at all, given the relentless amount of people that he's murdered? Um, so you've already kind of been set up in the the early part of this season to be like, oh, we should have empathy for everybody, right? Everyone, this is a really violent, hierarchical, horrible society that they live on, and everyone's just trying to do the best that they can. Um, but then you get to Ketel, and then by the end, like you know, he's lost everything. It's partly like his son's fault that, you know, uh, Canute is about to turn on him. Canute has his own kind of larger designs on the farm that have nothing to do with him as a person. So it does set up like by the time you get there that I think people were won over by his like, poor me. My life is so horrible. Everyone else is upending all my hard work. Um, And I think that people, and we are conditioned to dismiss the, the facts that Yukimura sensei was like laying out in terms of how awful of a person he was right because you also saw that in the difference between him and his father where his dad was like dude you are getting greedy and ambitious and you don't have to treat people this way but he was clearly ignoring his dad and again kind of crafting this poor me victimhood narrative which is really interesting because you then see his son right his son his well his two sons terrible sons his terrible sons, but wildly enough, Omar actually ends up in what, like, Vry has called the Nanami zone for me. <laughs> of characters who are just, start off so horrible, just so terrible, but then gross, grow so much over the course of the story, and, like, realize how fucked up they are, and then, like, ultimately, like, have some semblance of, like, 
enlightenment by the end of the story. <laughs> like, it's really wild to me that of all of the characters in Kettle's orbit, Almar is the only one who like actually seems to get it by the end of the sh- by the end of season two. It's it's hard to overcome those uh, that societal programming, you know. Yeah, and I think the thing is that Almar ultimately was protected by his own cowardice, right? And I think that's part of what's really interesting about Almar is that he he's such a coward and he's so incompetent at killing people and he's so incompetent at like being a, a you know a a, t- a, a, a disgusting you know um, Viking warrior or whatever. But because he's terrible at it and because he's he he's completely incapable of murdering anybody. Until, of course, the end when somebody, like, helps him do that, right? You know, with the little mirror trick. He's protected from, like, having to... From the kind of, um... How do I put this? Like, having that identity for himself of, like, you know... And having to, like, retroactively justify all of his decisions about murdering people over and over and over again, right? Now, the thing he still has to retroactively justify is his, his position within an enslavement system, right? Um, but I do think that him not being a, a warrior and being a coward actually is what allows him eventually to let go of being um, of the, the designs of Ketil and his brother, well, it's interesting that you point out the like that in this regard, um, his incompetence is kind of what saves him because I think it is in many ways um, Kethel's competence as a slave owner that ultimately damns him to the system, right? Like we're kind of finding him at a moment in his midlife where he has successfully built his estate and because of that has been able to free people and because of that has a reputation and has, you know, all these things. Um, I think it's because he's like totally successful within it that when he loses all those structures that he kind of enacts the worst forms of violence through it. When you make jokes about, you know, jokes about when the revolution comes, so-and-so will be the first ones with their back against the wall. It's a lot harder to let go of your notions in society when you are the one when you are succeeding in within those structures yes you have too much invested in it and omar still has things invested in it right so speaking of kind of the horrible violence that ketil does right when he's when he's losing everything right and how he lashes out um i want to talk a little bit about arnhide um because her arc i think is kind of the key to understanding a lot of the show's relationship with <laughs> enslavement and then like and and she is also what eventually Thorfinn kind of dedicates his work you know creating Vinland for to her at the end of the second season and like to like creating a place where she can where she would rather live than be literally dead <laughs> so yeah what are y'all's thoughts on, like, the way that the show presents Arnhide and, like, the specific experiences of enslaved women? You know, I think Arnhide is really, she's a really, really important counterpart or counterpoint to uh, Einar and Thorfinn's enslavement. Because, like I said, she is not in a position where she can work herself free. She is, she is stuck there. Uh, because, you know, her her labor as basically a uh, comfort object to Kittle is not something that creates, quote unquote, creates value. So even if she were like he wasn't treating her like this like his like security blanket that he'll never let go uh, there's no way for her to create enough value that she has earned what he earned back what he paid for her um which i think is an kind of an interesting way of looking at it 
Um, I also think that, well, and, and how like when, you know, women's labor is devalued because once again, it doesn't quote unquote create value. And yeah, he's just her, you know, the labor that she has to do is seen as more comfortable, but it is also highly demeaning. She's been, she had a family and she was taken away from it. And is being forced to do the things that she would be doing for her family with these people who have bought and paid for her. I think that I saw somewhere on Twitter at some point that someone compared Arnide's role in the story to be similar to Ascalad's in season one, obviously in terms of personality, but in terms of her role, right? Like she is this really crucial person character around which everything else is shaped and with her death at the end of the season and Thorfinn's inability or anyone's inability to kind of extract her from that situation I think it says a lot about the society and its consequences at the time Um, and I just think that's so valuable to think through because she is so quiet so unassuming so sweet right she starts off as a love interest for um Einar, and honestly, I didn't really think in the beginning that she would become such a meaningful character, and then they become friends, and then you start to see in their interactions between Einar, Thorfinn, and Arnide over time, the imbalances of gender, and how different gender, like how gendered the experience of slavery is, right? Because she's not the only female slave on the farm, but she is the one that's considered the favorite. And even when Einar and Thorfinn are treated as, you know, Kethel's favorites because they're successful in tilling the field, for them, there's still like a pathway out to freedom. And for her, being the the favorite is only going to entrench her more deeply in the violence and the sexual violence of it, right? And I think that's a deeply gendered experience of it. Um, And I feel like the reality of what happens to her totally crushes the myth that any model of slavery is viable because there's no model in which she was ever going to be free from him, right? His toxic masculinity, his desire to dominate. Um, And on top of that, all of the like vicious violence that she has to face from the Kethil's wife. Which is, you know, I think there is a degree of... um, uh, women being set in opposition to each other to their relationship right you know the wife resents arnheit because she is her husband's pretty little plaything whereas you know she has she is aging like people do and thus Cadel is not treat does not value her like he values arnheit but also she's a free human being. Yeah, and and she she presents herself as such, right? Like she comes off as that kind of cliche cis heteronormative naggy wife. Like she has opinions on how things should be done. She like wants him to be an active participant in parenting their two shitty children. Um <laughs> and, which is like a very reasonable expectation to have of co-parenting. But like, and then she resents Arnide, but like Arnide has been structured in this to literally have no sense of agency. She's expected to just not only be, like you said earlier, a comfort object, right? So it's not just about the sex, but it's about just being this empty blank slate for Kaitel to like project his whatever, any kind of emotional experience that he has. Um, so I thought it was interesting when you're talking about it. I think it's really difficult to tell throughout the show whether she has any opinion um until the very end when it's like of course she hates him right but i think because of how she's like forced into the position of like a blank facade i think that also perpetuates this idea that Kethil is like a somehow like kindly person and you know this is a positive position for her um and i think that people are also misled by that i also think it's interesting in the context of like this the idea of the the oppressive aspects of slavery being rooted in hate rather than love, right? Like a lot of people, I think, when they think about racism, for example, and I know this is an American context, but I still think it's relevant. Like that that racism is purely about hatred, right? 
and about like you know one group hating the other and that when we all come together things will be better and blah 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 but i i think that um what what stories like arnide show if we're like really looking deeply about at slavery and the structure of slavery is that a lot of the way that enslavement and especially the way that slave enslaved women were treated and subjugated was through these kind of declarations of twisted and bizarre and controlling love right this like and possession through what like Sadia Hartman would describe as scenes of subjection right um but like the the kind of the interesting thing is Hartman describes the kind of ascribing of humanity to the enslaved person as like what whatever like language that the enslaver uses to to describe the like state of the enslaved person will always be used to reinforce that person's enslavement right and when mm-hmm. when Ketel is about to you know brutally beat to death Arnhide, right? He says right before it, like, I'm doing this because I trusted you, right? Like, he's inscri- like, and he's inscribing in that moment this kind of, like, cruel sense of, like, he- like, their relationship he thought was between two, like, two people, one, somebody who he could trust. And now he has to, like, literally murder her, right? Um... And so it, it, the, 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 like, her, her subjugation is partially because, is, like, the language that he's using for his subjugation is the same language that, like, you know, people might say is, like, what makes him a, a kind, you know, a, a, a kind enslaver because he views her as a person, right? <laughs> but, mm-hmm. but no, actually, he, 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 even as he's describing, like, her personhood, like, her as... A, 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 a being who he can trust, right? Like, with thoughts and opinions of her own. He's using that then to kind of justify his, like, brutality and cruelty and beating her half to death. Um, because that w- will that she has, that, like, those thoughts must be controlled. Um, I... I hope I'm not getting too much into the theory weeds, but, like... The, no, the I think it's good. It's so important, like, when we're talking about, like, and I think about this as a teacher, too, like, when I, when we talk about our students and the idea of disciplining them and, like, treating them as autonomous beings, like, are we just finding ways to, like, make that language of, like, our, our students, especially when I work with black students as autonomous being as, as, like, justification for me, and that's why I need to, like, you know, control them (laughs) into, Mm -hmm. you know, exactly what they need to do. Um, so they can teach them responsibility for their actions, you know. Um, but anyways, yeah, that's some of my very shaggy thoughts on our ride. <laughs> well, I also think it's interesting because for as, like when we talk about the word violence in both seasons, season one had more physical violence, more frequent physical violence more portrayals of it in some senses but when i look back at both seasons one and two i feel like the violence of season two was so much more like searing into my memory like arnide the episode where she's beaten is just brutal it's just brutal in a way that like i don't think anything in season one comes close um to the like silence when she's being beat and you can kind of hear like the squelching and the hitting of the rod. Like it's like the portrayal of it for me, like really calls into question any glorification of what happened prior, you know, um, and anything that could happen afterwards. Like if you don't come out of that understanding more what Thorfinn's trying to get at, even though he's a little baby pacifist and trying to figure it out, like I have some deep questions about your humanity. Yeah, I think your point with the the violence of the first and the second season being so different, there's no way to count the violence in the second season as fun violence, right? Um, in the first season, it was, you know, not necessarily equals, but it was two groups of violent people coming together and doing a violence to each other. Whereas here, the violence is all about, is all subjugating vulnerable people it is 
Omar trying to get the guts up to just murder Thorfinn in the cold blood. It is uh, Cadel beating Arnhide to death because she tried to run away with her husband. Um, it's, it is so much more um, harsher because you cannot enjoy it in the way that a lot of people did. And, you know, once, once again, going back to the fan reactions, there is just uh people did not appreciate that <laughs> yeah and i think that part of it is just like perspective right like the first season is through the perspective of like i think a viking warrior the second season i think is through the perspective of somebody who's trying to let go of that i think it goes without saying that i like the second season more but yeah <laughs> um yeah and and i think the thing is that this sort of violence right like it it is still relevant today when i think about the the um experiences of like women who are in prisons right um and how systematically women in prisons are are raped and um and beaten and by the by the prison guards and how that is often through this kind of like justified through this cruel kind of like we need to teach these women a lesson to make them like responsible people and as we're doing it of course we're going to rape them right you know and i talked about that a lot on the anime and abolition episode but i think it it bears repeating right that like this is not something that's just contained to like, you know, what we traditionally think of as slavery, but is a, a structure that is still present in like contemporary <laughs> experiences of women in prisons and um, that that con- contemporary experience of what is effectively enslavement, um, modern slavery. A little bit more subtle of a theme of the show, but one that's still present is kind of the idea of empire. And the show engages with empire in, in a couple different ways, both through the story of Ashkelad and also through the story of like Canute and how Canute is trying to create like this gargantuan empire. And then also, like, there's a more complicated relationship with, like, solar colonialism in Thorfinn's desire to, like, create this new, like, Vinland-like community in in the Americas. And, you know, as people who live in America under solar colonialism, that's, it's interesting, but I don't know if we're going to go super into that. But did y'all want to kind of talk a little bit about, like, empire in the show? Well, I think that they're kind of to geography geographical sites to think this through um because you know the vikings are are kind of being resourced through scandinavia and you know uh denmark norway that region uh and they have extended their reach uh to england which is where most of where season one takes place um with askelad and then there's um, Iceland, right, where Thorfinn and Thor's is from, and Thor's having escaped. He was like, I just need to find a place away from this, from the Yom's Vikings, to um, be able to live a life of peace. So I, I think about both Iceland and England in this context of empire. Uh, when we get to England, the whole thing is about how do you dominate a place that is across the sea? And what kind of relationships do you need to build with the local people for them to accept domination? Uh, how regularly do you have to raid? Things like that. And Askelad is an interesting thing because, or character because in season one, we understand him for most of the season to just be a, a regular Viking. Um, even though he does give us hints when he meets Thor's that he's actually not the son of... Um, a Viking, but he says briefly, like, oh, I'm the son of, uh, you know, his mother, who's Welsh. Um, and he, then later we find out, like, okay, his mother was basically kidnapped and made to be enslaved um, and subjugated to his father, who was a 
like a Norseman and he hates the Vikings because of that colonial domination. So even though he participates in it, he secretly just resents and loads it. And it's, we start to kind of see it, uh, fissures in his character when Wales is at stake because he's like so deeply associates Wales with his love for his mother. Um, so I think all of that is interesting Right, like he's like fuck England, fuck like the Danes, but when it comes to Wales, like I will do anything I can to protect it and keep it peaceful. Um, so I think it's just interesting to kind of look at all of that. Um, and I guess I'd be curious, kind of, to how you all think that that shapes Thorfinn's understanding in season two, because um, he has a pacifist angle, but I don't think he's like an anti-imperialist, you know, um, in the way that I truly believe that Askeladd hated empire. Uh, as much as he participated in it. Thorfinn is interesting because I think that when I think about con- like his objections to Canute's empire, right? I'm not sure that he was objecting enormously to Canute being a king, right? Or to Canute having, you know like having the power of empire. I think he was objecting because of partially his relationship to a part that particular land, right? Um, which of course is related to empire and subtle colonialism. Like the reason that he like pushes like one of the reasons that he uses when he's talking to Einar and Einar's like, what are you doing? We're gonna get killed for this guy who enslaved us. Why are you doing this, right? <laughs> Why are you going off and sticking your neck out for, for, for you know, a farm that where we were enslaved? What is going on here? Which I think, frankly, are very valid questions. <laughs> like, I'm going to be real here. Um, but Thorfinn says, like, this land did so much for us, right? Like, this space is where I, you know... Um, and I don't remember if he says exactly, like specifically that he feels indebted to Kettle, which I personally find incredibly, like, questionable. <laughs> like, no, you shouldn't, dude. Um, or whether he's just talking about the land. But the way I kind of read it was, like, this is a space that is meaningful to me. Like, even if it's not the space I'm going to stay, it's still a, a place and a community that I want to protect, right? So I think that a lot of how Thorfinn, like, views his morality is at least partly through his connection with others, right? Like the interpersonal, like I want to create a place where Arnheide would feel safe, right? Like I want to create a place where I can have these meaningful bonds with people that are not affected by slavery, not affected by war. But I don't think necessarily that he is on principle opposed to like nation states generally. And like the idea of, well, if we can call them nation states, but you know, the like it, the idea of acquiring territory, given that he like he and Canute speak so respectfully to each other, and like versus Einar, who's just like kind of like the implication behind everything that Einar says to Canute is "fuck this dude," um, <laughs> which honestly I vibe with. Um, so. It's 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 very interesting. I, I I don't think I don't think Horfin is as simple as like, um, uh, being entirely anti anti imperialist, as much as he is just wanting to create a place where people who want to escape from war can. Mm-hmm. Right. Well, the thing is about Vinland is people already live there, right? He's talking yep. about creating a society where society already exists. So that is kind of, and he's probably not thinking of it in this way, but that is already kind of imperialist in and of itself. Yeah. And like that, I think that the manga is going to get more into that. And I'm really curious to see where the manga goes with that because I haven't read it, but um, I think that it's another season of the anime. You know, it makes me really mad that they haven't. I, I'm really, really fucking upset about that. They hinted it in um, a poster where it did like, I think it did like the Roman numeral three within Vinland Saga, but they haven't set dates or anything. It was just like a hint that it was forthcoming. 
But yeah, I think that like it's worth noting that Ashkelad's story kind of shows a little bit more of this like relationship between slavery and colonial violence because I think that the I think Ashkelad's story just makes very explicit that like slavery is a result of coloniality, right? They they are dependent on each other, right? In this society. Um which I think makes clear like the position of the story itself. So, okay, we've had plenty of thinking time, y'all. We've had plenty of thinking time. So I, I, I want to know, based on all of this, like, thought, who would win in a fight? Ilya or Thorkel? Give me your takes. You know, it's really hard to say. I think Thorkel would underestimate her at first, and she could probably use that to her advantage. Um, Thorkel has not, you know, stated a position on women fighting. <laughs> I don't think so, he has a position on much of anything except for right. Well, I mean, you know, do, does does he think women are are inherently weaker? Uh, would he, like I said, would he underestimate her, or does he? take her seriously as an opponent from the start because that could make a big difference yeah no i think you're right i think that maybe there's like two different questions of like who would win in a fight in which case you have to think about like would thor kelly even agree to fight with a woman like does he actually believe that it's possible but then like who could kill the other i wholeheartedly believe that based on that ilva could totally kill thor kell like i think that she would be able to ex- <laughs> Like, I think she would be able to exploit his underestimating her and the situation to just wreck him. Um, but whether you'd call that a fair fight or not is a different question. But I think she could do it. Yeah, listen. Um, it cannot be easy in having a, a house, a, just a household that's just a mother and daughter without any men in this, you know, in the culture that they live in. So we already knew she was tough as nails, but I feel like she's she's a survivor. Um, you know, I think it's not that Thorkel is an honorable fighter or anything, but I feel like she fights meaner and sneakier than he does. I feel like his entire like character in the first season is like the the Viking who has at least somewhat like it's not that he has morals necessarily but he has like a code of conduct that he holds himself to and i feel like that would fuck him up when it comes to fighting somebody like Ilya, who just has she 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 is pure like destructive potential and that's why she's so attractive <laughs> <laughs> I think he would be into it. I think by the end of the fight, he would be like, all right, yeah. I like this. Marry me. <laughs> Marry, yeah. No, I think it would, I, I think it would end with the marriage proposal. It'd be like, it'd be like Guel after, it, it's kind of like Guel at the end of uh, the second or third episode of <laughs> Witch from Mercury, or it's just like, well, you kicked my ass. You kicked my ass. And now... I have to ask you to marry me. But to which I, I have would to, kill but him. also sincerely. <laughs> Please marry me. She would kill him, you said? I wholeheartedly believe that you're right. It would end in a marriage proposal, and I think she would still wreck him. She'd be well, like, yeah. nah, you did not stand up for my dad when he was trying to figure this stuff out. So, like, we're good. I'm out. Ooh, that's a good point. Ooh. I didn't consider the anger. The emotional motivation. Thorkel yeah, just yeah. likes a good fight. He doesn't really have a whole lot in terms of like wants and desires other than just wanting a fight. Uh, she will probably she would probably bear him genuine ill will. That's true. I hadn't even thought of that. Wow. But hey, maybe enemies to lovers, you know? Eh? Well, aren't they also technically niece and uncle? I think they are actually relatives. I don't are think they? Care. So, uh. like, incestuous enemies to lovers? 
if you're oh if that's, God, that's, that's, that's the direction oh, but i think i'm good i'm good <laughs> all right well with that um we're gonna close this out this has been chatty af the anime feminist podcast you can follow anime feminist uh at at Anime Feminist on uh, Twitter. Uh, we also have a TikTok now, which I am definitely going to record something for very soon. Fe- Annie Fem Site. That's Annie Fem Site. And you can also follow us on Blue Sky, Macedon, Tumblr. Um, if you like what you heard, uh, we have a. Uh, please leave us a review and subscribe to this. And if you really like what you heard, you can subscribe to our Patreon at uh, patreon.com slash animefeminist. Um, your support goes us a long way, goes a long way to helping us uh, bring thoughtful uh, anime journalism t- to your feed. Um, thoughtful anime journalism and also sometimes uh, talks about who, discussions about who you would smash and uh, who would kill who in a fight. Yeah, um, you can't have one without the other. If you subscribe to our Patreon, you will also get access to our Anifem Discord, where you can continue the conversation of who's hottest and who's notest in anime. Um, and uh, we our, our, our anime discussion chat is literally called Anime Butt Chat, where we talk about anime butts and more. Um, Listen, one day I was watching Code Kiosk and something took over. Mm-hmm. All right. Anyways, um, and with that, uh, we'll see you next time. Bye-bye.